so sarcopenia has been associated with yeah quite a number of negative outcomes. The key ones obviously relate to things like disability and mobility itself. So just the capacity to move around the home and perform those everyday activities as well as move around your community. But sarcopenia is also associated with some chronic diseases. For instance, our muscle plays an important role in how we handle glucose, for instance. And so people with sarcopenia may be at increased risk for things like type 2 diabetes. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and today we're talking to two very learned guests from the Institute of Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University, Professors David Scott and Judy Porter. Both David and Judy's work focuses on older adults, with David looking at physical exercise and Judy at nutrition. And today we're talking about the cross-section of these two fields in aged care with an exploration of sarcopenia and malnutrition. As you'll hear in this episode, sarcopenia and malnutrition are very closely related, particularly in residential aged care, and there are a lot of extenuating factors that need to be overcome for successful health interventions, whether they're dietary or movement-based. As always, if you like our show, we'd love it if you took a few moments to share an episode with a friend. Maybe somebody has come to mind while you've been listening. And if you don't like our show, you could share an episode with someone you don't like, maybe as a sort of punishment. Anyway, uh, back to the episode at hand. We hope you enjoy this episode with Professors David Scott and Judy Porter. David and Judy, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having us, Ash. Thanks, Ash. Good to meet you. Yeah, likewise. And uh, maybe we can start, for our listeners who don't know about you guys, maybe we can start with a bit about yourselves. Judy, would you lead off for us? Sure. Thanks, Ash. So I'm Judy Porter and my role is as Discipline Lead for Dietetics at Deakin. Um, And so in that role, I um, contribute to our Master of Dietetics teaching program, but also lead and collaborate on Deakin-based and quite a few external projects as well. Um, I'm also Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Dietetics, which is our national um, nutrition and dietetics journal, and um, in recent months has been an aged care subject matter lead for Dietitians Australia. Fantastic. And David? Uh, Yeah, so I'm an Associate Professor of Research at Deakin University as well, alongside Judy. Um, My background is in exercise science, and my PhD was on sarcopenia, which I think we're going to talk a bit more about today. But essentially, yeah, I'm really interested in exercise interventions to improve physical function and independence in older adults. With my interest in sarcopenia, I lead some uh, studies, I guess, into improving the translation of what we're learning in research into clinical practice so that uh, older adults are being tested and and diagnosed and managed when they might have uh, poor physical function. Fantastic. And you called out there the, the topic for discussion here. Something that I learned recently is this term sarcopenia. And David, following on from what you're saying there, can you give us a bit of an explanation of what it is for those people who don't know? Sure. Well, it's a a good question because I think a lot of us really don't know exactly what it is because it hasn't been particularly well defined. So it was first defined 
over 30 years ago now as the age-related decline in muscle mass. And over time, the research increased thanks to, I guess, having a name and people looking for it. But what we found is that the decline in muscle mass itself isn't necessarily a good predictor of people who will have outcomes like disability, falls, fractures, for example. So in around about 2010, a, a number of societies got together and they suggested that sarcopenia should be considered not just the loss of muscle mass, but also the loss of muscle strength and physical performance generally. Mm -hmm. And so what we kind of have now is a, a term that is really defined as the progressive but accelerated loss of muscle mass and function with age, because everybody will lose muscle mass and strength as they age. But in this condition known as sarcopenia, we see that is probably accelerated relative to the average person. Great. And, and what are some factors that lead to this? Look, they're certainly a uh, contribution of low physical activity to sarcopenia and, and probably also, it sounds like the same thing, but what we call sedentary behavior. It's a different side of almost a different coin in some ways. There is some evidence that even people who are very physically active, if they have a lot of sedentary time, might experience uh, greater muscle wasting. And so that is a concern on its own. Um, so, I mean, that tends to increase a little bit as we age. And I think probably most importantly, what we see is vigorous activity is, is most beneficial for our muscle function and our muscle mass. And that's probably the type of activity that decreases the most as we age, because we probably can't perform it like we used to. We start to get the aches and pains that make it harder for us to do it. So um, what we see is kind of a withdrawal of what we call an anabolic stimulus for the muscles and, and, the, and then they essentially respond by decreasing in size and the amount of force that they can produ produce decreases as well. So really to address that, that the best thing we can do is to try and maintain that that amount of vigorous activity and, and really it's, it's sort of unequivocal that the best type of exercise for maintaining strength and muscle mass is uh, resistance type training. So mm -hmm. that's really any activity that involves a resistance. It can be lifting free weights, working on a weights machine, even working with your own body weight or with elastic bands, for instance, are, are all types of resistance exercise. And they really are the most effective types of exercise for our muscles, certainly. Great. And so this might have the effect of, of counteracting a loss of muscle mass or, or muscle strength. What are the, the risks associated with having a reduced muscle strength? Uh, so sarcopenia has been associated with yeah quite a number of negative outcomes. The key ones obviously relate to things like disability and mobility itself. So just the capacity to move around the home and perform those everyday activities as well as move around your community. So then we start to see a loss of independence, increased risk of institutionalization. Mm -hmm. But sarcopenia is also associated with some chronic diseases. For instance, our muscle plays an important role in how we handle glucose, for instance. And so people with sarcopenia may be at increased risk for things like type 2 diabetes. So it is linked with increased hospitalizations. Part of that is probably related to an increased risk of falls, which are, are generally seen to be higher in people with sarcopenia. And it's sort of been independently associated with just mortality itself. So I think all this kind of cascade of factors that occur from sarcopenia can lead to an increased risk of an early death, unfortunately. Okay, lots of potential negative outcomes there. And just so I'm, I'm extra clear on this, sarcopenia is it's not a name for a natural 
aging process, it's the result of sedentary behavior and perhaps malnutrition in older adults. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a really good summary of it is that, yes, muscle wasting and functional loss does occur occur naturally, but this is seen as an accelerated loss. And it is, yeah, I think in large part due to physical activity and nutrition issues. There is a large part of it that is genetically determined as well. We're all slaves to our parents in some ways in, in, mm-hmm. in what uh, happens to us in later life. But certainly there are just a number of changes that happen sort of at the muscle level. We see changes in the composition of the muscle. So the, the fibers that we have in the muscle that produce the most force, we often see a kind of decline in, in their size. So we're not producing as much force. The sort of signals to the brain that we have from our muscles and, and back just don't seem to work as, as well as that they did when we were younger. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of things going on that probably go beyond just physical activity and nutrition changes. But we certainly think that a big component of it can be addressed and and we can maintain muscle mass and function for longer if we can maintain good levels of physical activity and nutrition. Okay, so with the the malnutrition side there, is this a factor of you're lacking certain aspects of the diet or it's it's just a result of not eating enough? Can you define this malnutrition that might lead to sarcopenia, Judy? Well, malnutrition happens uh, when someone is not able to meet their energy requirements typically that leads to unintentional weight loss Um, and then we assess malnutrition using a a range of different factors including some functional measures such as hand grip strength um, or the the ability in a layperson's language I guess to to take a bottle off the the, the lid off of a jar that's one indicator I I guess of hand grip Um, but we can measure it more formally uh, in, in terms of scientific studies and in clinical practice Um, but also looking at um, the distribution of your body composition so um, indicators there include um, body mass index and and, and recent weight loss so altogether um, they can be assessed in in a range of formal assessment tools and you can be I guess deemed to be malnourished or at, at risk of malnutrition and so Ash we can come and talk about some of the dietary approaches there but um, really wanting people to, um, in a sense, move away from those guidelines that are used for the healthy population, um, that is people who are trying to avoid chronic diseases and instead focus on perhaps a higher energy, high protein diet to try and ensure that they don't uh, lose any more weight uh, on their journey. Fantastic. And what sorts of nutritional information is really going to be Nutritional content is really beneficial for people who might be at risk of sarcopenia. Ash, I I guess if if we think about sarcopenia and malnutrition sort of almost running hand in hand, um, particularly in that aged care space, um, uh, sarcopenia, of course, will be highly prevalent uh, in many recipients of of aged care services, but malnutrition is also prevalent in around 50% of residents of of aged care homes Mm -hmm. and, of course, many also who will be receiving care at home. So they typically do run hand in hand. And and what's really important is we don't uh, try and follow the the, the Australian dietary guidelines. They're not appropriate for this population. And so, you know, so often I've seen through my years of clinical practice, um, 
very frail little older ladies losing weight and they'll say to me I eat so well dear you know I eat my fruit and vegetables I eat my salads every day I don't have any chocolate I don't eat anything I shouldn't mm. and my my point to them is to throw out those rules they're not appropriate for you anymore and in fact here's your time to almost uh, binge out on all of those other foods that you've been trying to avoid to, <laughs> to try and prevent you getting chronic disease um, actually they're the foods that you should be eating so um, high energy high protein foods typically from the meat uh, and meat alternatives group so meat fish um, beans legumes tofu that group which are a high protein group but also then the dairy group milk cheese yogurt custard are all really high energy and high protein but we're encouraging people to not be choosing the the low fat versions as as all of us um, would be mm. to try and avoid our risk of chronic disease but go all out and take the full fat option to really boost those uh, energy intake uh, also looking at discretionary items which again we try and limit typically for the broader Australian population but when you're trying to put on weight um, there's nothing like a good bowl of ice cream some chocolate some milkshakes <laughs> those types of things to really help boost uh, a few extra kilos and that's exactly what you're trying to do so rather than this you know try and lose weight try and eat really healthily you're actually trying to, to flip that on its head to really boost your energy intake yeah that's great and I can see that there might be a challenge even if, for example, in a residential aged care facility, you, you might have a care recipient has thought all their lives, oh, I've got to be careful how much ice cream I eat, how much chocolate I eat. You're going to need to work with them to encourage them to be more enthusiastic with those sort of richer foods, aren't you? That's right. Um, it, it's funny how you bring your own biases and your own um, beliefs into your work. Uh, and so it is a, about actually educating the, the whole workforce around what the appropriate strategies are to deal both with sarcopenia and with malnutrition. As you've raised there, uh, it, it really can be a challenge at that sort of institutional level to, to meet energy requirements. And in one of our recent studies, we found that actually only one in 10 main meals, that is lunch or dinners, served in aged care homes were being fully eaten. Wow. And this is one of the reasons why there's su such a, an issue, why malnutrition sarcopenia is such an issue, because actually uh, residents are not eating all of their meals. Um, that's got a couple of follow-on effects, Ash, and, and one of those is that there's obviously a lot of food waste um, and we don't want that food to be wasted. We actually want people to be consuming the food so that they get the nutritional benefits from it rather than it typically heading in, into landfill, which is another story perhaps for another day, Ash. But mm -hmm. equally, one of the reasons they're not able to finish their meals is because people who are older um, and who aren't expending a lot of energy actually don't typically have a very high appetite. Um, and so they're not able to eat the same volume of food that we would eat. And so what's really important is the, that we make every mouthful count uh, for this population, that rather than taking foods such as broths, um, low energy soups, uh, salads, 
things that are of little calorific value, mm-hmm. the types of foods that you would try and eat if you're trying to lose weight, um, we want to remove them from the menu and instead make every mouthful count. So making them nice fortified meals, high in ed- energy and high in protein to ensure that we're really maximising the chances of the residents um, maintaining their nu- nutritional status uh, whilst they're in-, in that residential home. You're listening to the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. And we want to thank all of our listeners and subscribers, especially those people who've shared this podcast with a friend or colleague. Because of you, we've just entered the top 50 mental health podcasts on Apple Podcasts, and we're one of the fastest growing health podcasts in Australia. We're looking to take the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast to the next level by partnering with great organisations to showcase their message with our rapidly growing audience of aged care executives and people working within the industry. If you'd like to discuss what an advertising opportunity with our podcast can mean for your business, send us an email. We're at acepodcast at silveradventures.com.au. That's S-I-L-V-R adventures. Remember, there's no E in there. Now let's get back to this week's guest. So one one aspect I imagine uh, is going to be uh, an important part of the treatment of sarcopenia is you'll need to have an intervention, right? And this could take both sides of exercise and nutrition. David, what would you see as, as a starting point to addressing some of those symptoms? I think the first thing from my perspective is if we're going to implement an exercise program for any older person and really for any person, we need to know what their what their goals and their priorities are. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we, we do neglect that. We, we ask people to take on an exercise program that may not actually be doing for them what they would really like to see. So the most common thing that we hear from older adults is the thing that matters to them is probably mobility, mm-hmm. being able to move around the community, having their independence. So a lot of what we implement, certainly for community dwelling older adults, and we don't actually do a lot of research in the aged care area, but certainly in terms of the community dwelling people, we try and engage them in activities that really are primarily targeting the lower limbs, improving strength and balance so that they can walk around, they can have confidence in walking around that they're not going to fall and really uh, yeah, maintain that independence. And so I think every type of exercise really needs to be tailored to what the individual needs. It needs to be progressive. So once we get to a certain level where we can perform that exercise, we need to move on to the, the next thing and, and getting more challenging or the benefit is just going to plateau where it is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in the aged care setting, I recognize that there's a lot more challenges than probably what we experience in the kind of research sector, dealing with community dwelling older adults, obviously costs and resources are are limited in in what you can actually do but i think there's an opportunity for in the aged care sector people to be upskilled a little bit in looking at what the residents are doing in terms of their physical activity having discussions with them about what are your priorities what are your goals what are some barriers that you have to to movement and even just having simple discussions that maybe take a few minutes just to kind of identify some ways that you can work together to get people more active Mm. I could see that there might be there might be some sort of you know low self esteem and some feelings of maybe feeling a little bit down on yourself if you're losing mobility as you're aging and, and it might be also part of this process might be encouraging people that it, it can actually be better we can work on this and help you be a bit more mobile do you see that as part of the process as well David absolutely yeah I think the motivation side of it is huge 
I, I think long term that's a, a big issue too. I think when people are, are in that phase where they are starting to notice a decline, they are quite motivated to to address it, and it's maybe not as much of a challenge for most people to get them involved in some type of intervention. But I think it's it's probably that stage they get to. Often with exercise, we say it's about 12 weeks into an exercise program mm. where the massive benefits that you've been having from that initial starting point do start to plateau a little bit and you're not you're not seeing those same gains. So I think finding ways at, at those points particularly, that's a, a key kind of point where we need to embed this as a lifestyle focus now. It's mm-hmm. not this thing that you're doing for a short period of time to try and get a, a little benefit. It's this is your life now. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the hardest thing, I think, making it a habitual for people. But certainly having conversations around what are your goals, helping people understand that the benefits they're seeing are real mm-hmm. and, and that uh, they can continue to have benefit, they can continue to maintain that level of independence that they have. I think those are really key conversations. Yeah. And, and Judy, I can imagine that for older adults in the community or receiving home care, interventions would be would present all sorts of challenges as well. They do. Um, from a study perspective, they have all sorts of challenges uh, in terms of compliance, uh, implementation and measuring at nutritional outcomes. That, that's a challenge. But in terms of you know, practical life sense, I guess, Ash, which is what you're more interested in, is that there's challenges in terms of at the most basic level, I guess, financial challenges that older adults so often face, particularly those living alone. Um, so issues of food security or as such food insecurity where people may not be able to readily access food Mm. or the amount of food as often as they need it so that's a problem in itself also having the skills and the ability that the motivation and the confidence to to prepare and to cook food or a level of reliance on on family uh, or carers to get them to the supermarket to buy and then to produce food i mean that's just before you even start eating mm. right and 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 at the eating level then there's issues around you know texture where people might need modified texture meals um, they might have dentures for example that are ill-fitting and you know the combination of you know nutritional and and, and dental issues are are overwhelming. Um, There's a lot of evidence presented at the Royal Commission around dental issues combining with nutrition issues. And so we we, we need to make sure that people where they have dentures that have them appropriately fitting or otherwise if they still have their teeth that they are are in good condition and and looked after. And, And of course, that's another set of issues around cost, accessibility, Mm. ongoing care, etc. So once but once they finally, you know, make the meal, um, hope, hopefully we're able to, to successfully chew and swallow it um, in, in the right amounts. And it's often, as I mentioned, um, the right, right amount that, that can also be challenging, that people can actually receive the, the volume of food that they need. And as you talked about, you know, motivation there with David, and we, look, we so often see people who are lonely and people who are d- depressed, particularly those living alone, that of 
course, also impacts on their nutritional intake. Mm. Let's face it, when you're struggling to have the motivation to get up and about on the in a day, it's pretty tough to then face cooking a meal for yourself. Um, so that's when, you know, support services can be really useful. Meals on Wheels, spending a day at a, at a day centre, getting support and friendship from others, um, eating with others where you can. And I think, you know, there's a lot of strengths i guess to, to eating with others in residential care mm -hmm. we know that people who eat together in a dining room are more likely to eat more than those who eat alone so it's the things that you find in that family setting that the the eating together the sharing of a meal the the distraction you just sit and eat while you're talking um are more likely to to make sure that you can get all of the the nutrition that you need yeah lots of variables there huh and I wonder, in a practical sense, lots. <laughs> in a practical sense, are these interventions nutritionally? Is that does that come in the form of a diet plan or a meal plan? What would that look like? Yeah, certainly. I guess um, from a from a dietitian's perspective, then you may be following someone up in the community after discharge from hospital. So dietitians are available in the community, also av available in private practice settings. Um, I guess that's where the majority of people living and receiving care at home would be able to access a dietitian. Um, certainly through the government scheme of um, care plans that you can receive five sessions uh, with an allied health professional free per year mm -hmm. is one one way that people can access a dietitian um, through affordable, more affordable measures than if you're paying um, uh, privately, I guess. And yes, you would work with your, your client, um, whether it's a a, a patient, a resident, um, to to develop um, a meal plan that really fits fits their needs. Um, that of course would be based on what they're already eating. So finding out what someone already eats mm. to get a, an idea of their food likes and dislikes in addition to current intake, but then tailoring that based on their individual needs um, and providing follow-up care to see if their nutritional indicators are progressing in the right direction. So whether those indicators, of course, are weight-based, um, but other functional measures as well. And as David was talking about, you know, for exercise, that may be around around balance, around um, falls risk. But for nutrition, you know, aside from from weight, it's whether you then you know can get back into the community, out doing the the things that you, you love to do. And that's at, at the end of the day what it's about, right? Um, living well, having a, a high level of quality of life, and I think that's what we're all you know working towards. Yeah, absolutely, and. I wonder because you mentioned there the this idea of you know what the individual needs is so crucial at this point, but in some you know residential settings, the idea of having lots of individually tailored meals may not be operationally possible. What does the reality of that look like in in residential aged care? And look, you... meals certainly do vary between uh, residential facilities, and I guess that's one of the take home messages um, from that Royal um, Commission into Aged Care that. Some people receive amazing nutrition and other people's um, menus and access to food is, has been less than desirable. And so um, in response to those findings, the government has in introduced a, a scheme. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when it starts, but I think quite soon that there'll be more access to to funding to support mm -hmm. better provision of, of menus and, and food um, within residential aged care. Uh, I guess where my lobby on that point is at the moment is is that we want to make sure that we make every mouthful count and that we actually don't just provide
provide a whole lot more food um, that people can't eat. We want people to be able to eat to meet their nutritional requirements. So what I'm saying from that, Ash, is I, I guess referring back to that same piece of research there where we saw that only 10% of meals across a, a multi-center trial that I was involved with um, were, were fully eaten. Uh, we don't just want to provide another $10 per resident per day of food into that food waste pile. Um, we actually want to make sure that food is being eaten, remembering that people can only manage um, small volumes of food. So really making sure that we can focus on these high energy, high protein diet to really reduce the likelihood of um, residents becoming malnourished. Mm, yeah, absolutely. David, jumping back over there. So we're talking about movement and prescribing a plan or, or working with an individual in a care setting to develop a routine that's going to help them address some of these these deficiencies. How does that happen in a one-on-one scenario in such a in a large residential facility? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a challenge, and obviously facilities do vary considerably in terms of what they have available to them. Obviously, there's facilities that have beautiful gym complexes and facilities that really have have very little in terms of um, exercise equipment and and people to deliver the exercise. So it's difficult to, I guess, have a kind of blanket uh, summary of of how it looks. Certainly, as Judy mentioned, you know, the Allied Health Referral Scheme is open to exercise physiology as well. So patients can potentially be referred to an exercise physiologist and can receive, you know, five free uh, visits with an exercise physiologist uh, each year, I believe it is. And, and I mean, that is one way, I guess, to get a, an exercise um, program started. But you obviously need ways to then continue that on, whether it be in the aged care facility or if there's provisions for the residents to, to go to a gym or, or somewhere in, in the community nearby. They're probably the barriers, I, th- I think, in terms of how that's managed. So Look, it's very individual in terms of what the residents are capable of doing. I think that you'll find there's a spectrum of residents who maybe will just benefit from some kind of movement plans to get them up off the the chair and and, and moving around reasonably regularly, breaking up that sedentary behaviour to the, the quite functional people who could benefit from being in a gym, lifting free weights. And so what I think that the starting point is, is potentially the upskilling of staff within the facilities to be able to identify those needs, Mm. to have those conversations, see what the the residents are interested in doing, what their goals are, as we talked about earlier. And then I guess being able to kind of refer them on to the the right uh, kind of intervention that, that might be suitable for them, whether that's a, a group exercise where, you know, people are just doing some flexibility training and a little bit of uh, balance training in in the community hall or you know out to out to gyms if that's available to them but i think that the main thing is that the residents have options available to them mm-hmm. so that they can select something that kind of appeals to to what they would like to do and what their needs are great and maybe something that's going to be helpful here for listeners is you know for people who don't have a physiology or a nutritional background what are some sort of signs to look for in older adults that might be experiencing malnutrition or sarcopenia i think from the functional side of things there's some indicators that we refer to there is a, a tool that people can uh, look up on the internet it's called sarcf s-a-r-c hyphen f um, and that just lists five key kind of um 
uh, indicators of people who might be losing physical function. So it asks about their ability to to carry a certain weight, whether they think they could do that. It asks about whether they need any assistance with walking. It asks about falls that they might have had. And it asks similar questions to that. It's only about five questions. And so that can be quite uh, helpful, I think, as just sort of a screening tool to identify some of the mobility limitations, some of the strength limitation that might be manifesting and that might need some type of intervention. Great. And, and Judy, do you have anything to add? Uh, in terms of uh, malnutrition risk, Ash, I think that you know there's a couple of key questions. One is, um, have I lost weight? Particularly, did I, did I mean to lose weight? So was that weight loss unintentional? And mm. I think um, that's a really good indicator, particularly for family members, um, seeing their visiting their parents at home, visiting their parents in residential care, for example. Um, so are, are their clothes fitting? Has their belt, their notch on their belt moved? Are their trousers looser than before? Are their shoulders more hunched over, those cardigans or coats more, more baggy on their shoulders? Um, and I think in warmer climates, you know, you can often, often see that the bones are perhaps protruding more around the shoulder, around the chest, and, of course, around the legs, mm-hmm. um, bits that are more visible than, than before. For patients with dentures, are they fitting correctly? Really good indicators of whether someone's been losing weight and then start asking those questions, you know, to look at um, look at recent intake. Has it changed? Has that weight loss been really quite aggressive? That is, does do someone need to have more follow-up and checking from, from the 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 doctor you know is there something more sinister happening or actually is this someone on that trajectory towards malnutrition and and where do we need to stop and intervene um, to turn it around yeah absolutely those are I guess all of those are very clear, visible signs that, that uh, people can pay attention to. Guys, we I feel like we've got a lot of stuff here and we've we've really dived deep into the topics we're looking forward to getting into. Is there anything you want to talk about before we go, any sort of research or any takeaway messages you wanted to share with an audience? Yeah, no, Ash, look, look. I guess in terms of IPAN, we, David and I are involved collaboratively in quite a few different projects at, at IPAN. And look, we're not um, not particularly looking to recruit for those um, through your through your webinar but um, we do have research that comes out from time to time and so I guess encouraging your listeners to to keep an eye on the IPAN website but also to perhaps get in contact with David or I our details are pretty easy to find um, using a search engine on on the internet Um, email us if you're interested in our research and we're happy to to share that up with your listeners if we've got something that we think would be relevant for them Awesome. David and Judy, thanks for joining today. Thanks for having us, Ash. Thank you, Ash. It's great to chat today. Thanks again. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, Visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silver, that's S-I-L-V-R, adventures.com.au. See you next week.